For me, I think a voice and a song in particular carries with it a human experience at its simplest and often its rawest. Music has always been a vehicle for the spirit of people, the spirit of the times and the stories of people. And where we believe those stories, that's empathy in action. And that's where action can begin. Hi, I'm Hosier and this is Cry Power. My podcast about people who are using what's available to them to change the world. Presented with our friends at Global Citizen, on each episode I'll be sitting down with people who are putting themselves out there to support a cause that's dear to them. I'll be talking to people whose work is making a real difference. Musicians, artists, or just some of my heroes. Nick Rono is a leading international activist in the fight against modern slavery. He was the first CEO of the Walk Free Foundation, an organization that under his watch created the most comprehensive global survey on human trafficking, the Slavery Index, which estimates that there are 40.3 million people enslaved across the world today. Currently, Nick is the CEO of the Freedom Fund, an organization that has existed for five years. It financially assists and supports NGOs on the front line that help fight human trafficking. And since its conception, and through the work with their partners, it has liberated over 100,000 people from slavery, helped get 36,000 at-risk children back into school and directly engaged with 400,000 men, women and children vulnerable to slavery. It's a crisis that deserves global attention and... It's an absolute pleasure, and I have to say it's an honour to uh, welcome Nick today. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us and coming in and speaking about the, the work that you do. And well, I'm just delighted to be here. It's it's always good to be kind of talking about these issues and raising awareness, and thanks for your interest. No, it's, it's fascinating for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this because it, it is, with regards to modern-day slavery, I have a lot to learn, I have to say. And when we, when we talk about slavery, uh, oftentimes people... Well, I think what comes to people's mind is is the imagery of of the Atlantic slave trade, people being taken, thrown onto 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 boats, onto slave sh- ships, chains. How would you de- to describe? How would you define modern slavery? I mean, I, perhaps I could just start by saying I came from the same place you did, like five or six years ago, when I started working on this issue. And mm-hmm. you know, and and the first when you hear this term modern day slavery, your your response often is like, "What do you mean?" Right? Mm-hmm. Slavery ended two hundred years ago in much of the world. But in fact, what happened was it was abolished legally, but it continued in various forms all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way we think of slavery is about vulnerable people who are being exploited by those with real power over them. And not just exploited, but controlled to provide work or sex. So very fundamentally about power and vulnerability. And a lot of people, when they do think about this, think of sex trafficking. Girls, particularly from poor countries or, you know, vulnerable communities, maybe from Eastern Europe or being forced out by conflict, desperate for work, tripped and trapped and drugged and forced to work in brothels. And that's a big part of it. But it's only about, I mean, on the numbers, all the numbers are a bit weak because it's a hidden crime, but that's about 10, 12%. Right. And most of it is about people, men, women, and children forced to work and under threat of punishment if they don't work. So I go to places like India and and go to, you see, brick kilns or stone quarries where whole families have been trapped in this cycle of exploitation and young kids as young as seven or eight just spending their days breaking rocks and they can't escape from this, yeah. you know, and, and then there are millions of 
people in that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You came, just to, just to give the, the listeners, I suppose, a, a bit of context as to how you arrived into this. You're coming from some similar place. You're from Australia yourself, working as an advisor for the Attorney General in Australia. How did you end up doing what you do now with the Freedom Fund, which is, you know, bringing people together and, and, and working with people on the ground? There's a, there's a, there's a long version and a short okay. version. Okay. Yeah. The, the short version, I mean, I started my life, my, my professional life as a corporate lawyer. Okay. As far away as possible as you, in Australia. I worked for a big investment bank and then I went to work for the government. And in our space, people often want a story. You know, it's like, well, my parents were social activists. Well, my parents weren't social activists. My, my, my dad was in the merchant navy. My mum's a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an unusual upbringing, though, in one sense, in that I spent three years on a sailing ship, like a 100-year-old sailing ship, sailing around the world. Okay. Going to places like Pitcairn and Galapagos and all through the Caribbean. My dad was the captain. Mm-hmm. It's one of these, you know, you see them in the old movies. Yeah. Um, and that must have had some influence in my thinking about some of these issues. Mm-hmm. I can't give you a, a, a direct line. Mm-hmm. Um, but what probably was formative, I think, was when I was a corporate lawyer in my first couple of years, my big corporate law firm offered a chance for people to go and work as pro bono for legal aid. And I was the only lawyer in a law firm that volunteered to do this. <laughs> okay. I thought I'd be fighting, you know, a big <laughs> crowd of people to get that. For, right. And that just completely transformed my perspective on on so many things because you are seeing the most vulnerable in our wealthy societies. Mm-hmm. So my law, my law firm still paid for the salary mm-hmm. and I got to work at Legal Aid. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Legal Aid was for providing legal assistance for people who couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, that also meant travelling right up to the outback and the north and some of these communities and indigenous populations and, mm-hmm. and working there and just seeing aspects of my society that I just didn't know about. Yes. And I started after that doing a lot more volunteering and working with gender dysphoria groups and others that, that needed assistance. And I suspect that was the beginning of, of the process. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you were a corporate lawyer. Maybe that offered you some, some language and uh, that, that offers you information on, on, on that side of things. But it's just fascinating. What was that experience like? How did that, how did that lead you? How did, what, how did that inform you moving on in, in, in your career? Yeah, so I, uh, I was very much on the dark side, and I say that with due apologies to all my corporate lawyer friends who are still doing corporate law, and I, I also worked for Goldman Sachs. So, you know, I, um, okay. yeah. um, but, but what, what I find is so interesting is that, you know, and I find the law fascinating, and I didn't understand the law really when I was working as a corporate lawyer. And now, even though I'm working for an NGO, a charity, law is at the heart of everything I do. Slavery is fundamentally legal under international law. Slavery happens because the laws are not being enforced. So mm-hmm. in some ways, I'm much closer to the law because it's like, how do we actually get our legal systems to work? So when I say that I didn't really understand the law, I didn't really understand about the law, the rules, the power, the, the, the kind of dispensation of power. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I kind of think about this all the time about, you know, what is the rule of law? What do we mean when we say everyone should be equal under the rule of law? What do we mean when we say that politicians should be subject to the same kind of treatment under the law as, as these really vulnerable migrant women in, in rural Thailand? Um, so that I find really interesting. I mean, the kind of, the, the, the question I struggle to answer is what was the trigger? And, I, and, and there was no trigger. It was a gradual move. And I think it was, I mean, I, anyone doing law, I, I, when people ask me, you know, and particularly when people doing really interested in public policy. I say, if you get the opportunity to work as a lawyer for a couple of years, it is just invaluable because it does give you the tools to understand how societies work. Now, the real challenge is to then go from that 
and often a relatively highly paid legal job to working in the non-profit sector, which by definition, non-profit, you know, um, but is so much more rewarding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have, uh, I feel I have a deeply privileged life. I work with phenomenal people who are truly dedicated to causes and so many causes that, that make a real change. I would not exchange it for anything. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to make that transition. But the other piece of advice I give to, and I spend a lot of time, I, I mean, part of what I think my service is, is to speak to people who are interested in working in this space. And if you really want to work on on social justice and activism, if you really are determined, you can do it and you will do it. It's hard. These days, a lot more people want to work in this space, which is phenomenal. Uh, and if you want to work on development, you know, you go to Africa and you volunteer and it can be hard, especially if you don't have financial backing from your parents. Uh, but there are ways it can be done and um, and it's almost invariably hugely rewarding. As a parent, yeah. one of the more harrowing experiences of my working career, um, and this is before I really understood slavery, is I went up to northern Uganda and there was this um, rebel group called the Lord's Resistance Army okay. that had rampaged across northern Uganda and would raid villages and kidnap the kids, force the kids, usually the boys, to kill their parents or kill a family member as a way of ostracizing them from their community, take the boys, pump them with drugs, turn them into child soldiers, take the girls, turn them into sex slaves and porters. And I met some of the um, the kids that had escaped um, and the, 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 the visible trauma that you see on, yeah. I mean, there's just, I mean, the boys were just blank faces and, and, and 15, 16 year old girls with babies that are a product of rape by, mm. by you know, I mean, it, um, and that's one aspect. I mean, that was my introduction, even though I wasn't thinking through the lens of modern slavery. This is child soldiers, sex slaves. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, and, and it's just communities that, you know, can be mm-hmm. exploited by by those very powerful warlords and others that... Yes, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You've stated before that people think of slavery. We, we think of it as a hidden crime, let's say, but there is visible examples we can see. How is it that it can still thrive today in nearly 2020? Here we are. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I mean, slavery is illegal everywhere. Mm-hmm. However you define it, human trafficking, slavery, forced labour, bonded, it's illegal. But it happens because, and I keep on coming back to this, but to me it's because people wield so much power over vulnerable people. So, mm-hmm. you know, here it can happen with kids running away from home, particularly girls, end up on the streets, get drawn into, you know, an environment where they're then exploited. And in places that that we go to, like Burma or India, you know, it happens because, well, let me phrase this another way, okay? I mean, slavery touches all of us today in many ways, and we, we don't realise this, but one of the drivers of slavery, um, modern-day slavery, is the kind of insatiable demand for really cheap goods. Okay. And so when you go to places like India, I mean, if, you, if, you're, buying, if you're buying a pair of jeans for, for five pounds, you've got to ask yourself, you know, how was that produced mm-hmm. in a faraway country, produced, designed, you know, the cotton grown, the cotton, the milk, the, the mm-hmm. cloth produced, manufactured, distributed, sold, mm-hmm. branded uh, at that price. Well, usually the way that can happen is that those that are producing the goods are paid nothing or next to nothing. Right. right. Uh, and, and that's not just in, in clothes, but uh, it can be in coffee, uh, when coffee and chocolate in West Africa are produced by child labour, forced labour, yes. tobacco, yeah. uh, all of, not all of these, but many of these goods that are produced in 
very low income countries with kind of not very strong legal systems, mm -hmm. people get exploited to maximize the profits. Yes, yeah. I would imagine you have a huge challenge. It's a huge, huge challenge. And let's say speaking to business leaders and speaking to political leaders, yeah. I just, it was reported that consumers would be the one that would foot the bill of laws that, that would make sure that there is no slavery in their supply chains, let's say. The collaborating process with, with, with minds like that, how do you sit down with people with such strong views of, on something like that to engage and kind of spark that empathy in people and, and that's another thing I'm fascinated by how do you, how do you, how do you go about engaging with, with minds like that There's such an interesting conversation going on right now isn't there about the purpose of companies and profit and, and all of these things and you know if someone says if a business leader says well it's all about providing the cheapest goods and consumers will have to pay more well you know at some level, that's a ridiculous statement because society requires that there are certain protections, right? Mm -hmm. We probably pay more for goods because of environmental protections, right? Companies that used to pump their chemicals into water supplies now don't. Mm -hmm. Probably cost them more because they actually have to dispose of them properly. Mm -hmm. And we as a society say that, that that's an acceptable cost. Yes. Well, when it comes to human slavery and exploitation of people, I'd say it's an acceptable cost to insist that there are bare standards, that you are not forcing people to work under threat of physical punishment or controlling them so they can't leave. Mm -hmm. And yes, it may mean that in consumers end up paying more mm -hmm. because you are not getting goods for free. But you know, imagine using that argument 200 years ago to defend the slave trade on a cotton. So, yeah. you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. I believe, what I know, I believe that is a defence that was used in, in the right. pre-abolition, you know. Yep. Could you speak to us about the, the kind of the hotspots? I know, as you said, you do a lot of work in, in India and kind of further afield, but it is it is something that touches us here in the Western world. But for for you, I'm sure there's, there's hotspots in, in, in Brazil and in India, but here in the, in the Western world, we do, as you say, we, we benefit from it and we do we do contribute in our own way. How can we look out for that? Is there things that consumers can, being aware of how they might be contributing to that? Yeah, it's it's a really good question and it's a really hard one to answer because slavery is hidden. And so I'll give you one example. Um, Thailand, the Thai fishing industry uh, is very heavily dependent on migrants who have come from Burma or from other neighbouring countries and they're desperate for work. They're often tricked and onto these fishing boats where... They often work 20-hour days. They're often pumped full of amphetamines to keep them going, subject to horrible beatings. If they get really ill, you know, there are many, many um, cases where people, um, ill sailors have been thrown over the side because it's cheaper than going back in. So, and, and produce fish products, either fish that make their way directly to our markets or fish that's used to, for, the, for the prawn farms in, in Thailand that then the prawns come over here, which are sold on supermarket shelves here. Now, you know, one response is boycott those, but that doesn't really solve the problem because, first of all, a lot of people depend for their living on, on it. So the real response is requiring companies to be more transparent about where they're getting their goods from and what their policies are. And that's what we need. We need so much more information about, you know, where are supermarkets here buying from their suppliers and those suppliers, what are their policies and how are they doing it? Because it's only with information that then we can empower consumers. Mm -hmm. So consumers can say, because consumers, when you talk to an engaged millennial audience, they'll say, well, we don't want clothes that are produced with exploited labor. Yeah, but yeah. we can't tell them yet 
which are and which are not. Okay. So the real push is more information. More transparency. More transparency. Oh. Getting people to ask, you know, the brands that they're buying from, what are your policies? Okay. Do you have a policy? Mm-hmm. What do you do about your suppliers? Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you check on them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good way forward. Pride Power podcast will explore the UN's 17 Global Goals, a series of objectives that aims to end extreme poverty, reduce inequality, and tackle climate change by 2030. To take action on any of these issues we talk about on the show, go to globalcitizen.org slash crypower and get involved. Companies and corporations, let's say, it's not it's not like a democratic thing. I suppose you can you can withhold your your I and mean, that's your way of voting as a consumer yeah. with regards to companies like that. But is it, you know, as as voters, then is is there kind of a, is there a cross section here between voting for politicians also that that require that or who, who hope to legislate for more transparency? How would a consumer put that pressure on a company, let's say, to produce that transparency or to or to engage in in, in just in offering that information? Yeah. So my job and my organization and the organization I've worked for in the kind of charitable sector, it's about driving big social change. Mm-hmm. And one way, obviously, is to have consumers activated, right? And and the example that we see today that just inspires all of us is things like single-use plastic mm-hmm. and how quickly that oh, the whole community changed here in the UK about mm-hmm. single-use plastics because of Blue Planet, because of... But there's probably years, not probably, but years of activism behind all of that. Yes, right? yeah, it just doesn't happen. So, so part of it is just mobilising people and making them aware. It's part of them is is having these conversations so right. that a much bigger audience become aware of it. I don't think the responsibility is on consumers. Mm-hmm. The responsibility is on the corporates. Absolutely, yeah. And then the responsibility is also on political leaders. And so part of our job is to mobilise political leaders and pressure on political leaders, mm-hmm. and not just pressure, making them aware of the issue. Right? Yes. One can be extremely disparaging of political leaders in, in this country today, as, as I often am. Um, but Prime Minister Theresa May, before she left, basically came out, became aware of the issue of slavery and said, this is the greatest human rights challenge of our time. And was obviously personally moved by this issue and passed good legislation. Could have been better, but it was good legislation, which started the process of uh, requiring companies in the UK... Um, to start publishing what their policies were. Okay. It's a really good first step. Yeah. And so amidst all of, you know, the, the, the challenges we all have with, with our politicians, I think it's important sometimes to understand we can drive change and we can produce good laws. And then off the back of that, my country, Australia, has produ- produced a modern slavery law mm-hmm. um, and we're seeing pressure and momentum around other countries for similar legislation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that will give the tools to consumers mm-hmm. to start, making more informed choices. So it's that kind of process that we're trying to build. Is there a, a website or a watchdog that's easily accessible that, let's say, consumers can go to and that offers the credentials of, of companies? And then... There still isn't. You know, okay. there are things... We support a database called um, the Modern Slavery Registry, which lists companies that are publishing statements. Mm-hmm. There's a um, campaign site called Freedom United, which runs campaigns that are very accessible to consumers and so on who are really interested in the issues. Mm-hmm. But we're still struggling. And I find it not difficult, but, you know, as activists, we want to give a clear solution, a clear action. And in slavery, there is no clear answer yet yes. other than building awareness and then asking the questions and putting pressure 
Um, we need to do a lot better at storytelling and finding ways to engage the public. But you know, in all fairness, in the UK, awareness has risen hugely. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You see signs at airports, at stations about this issue. You read about nail bars, you read about car washes. So there is an example of what can happen over five years of concentrated activism. Yeah, yeah. But we have a, lot way, a long, long way to go. I mean, you, you, you mentioned about sex trafficking, uh, sex slavery. Women in the developing world often far more at risk of falling into the conditions. In your experience, do you find trying to empower economically developing regions, is that, is that helpful? Absolutely. I'm going to go to um, Burma next month. And I was there about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and went up to the, the border with China. And the situation there is young women, desperate for work. Burma, super poor. Mm-hmm. Myanmar, super poor. And they're often offered jobs right on the border or sometimes in China. So they go for these jobs. And then I met a number of women, and these are some of the more distressing stories, I, you know, who had taken those jobs and were basically then kidnapped and trafficked into China to become wives <laughs> because there is a huge shortage of marriageable women in China because of the single child policy. Okay. So there's like this marriage gap of 20 million. End up in the middle of China, have no idea where they are, don't speak the language, mm-hmm. right, and are completely vulnerable. And we use the language of forced marriage, but it's it's rape and it's forced childbearing yeah. to have children. Um, and one woman that I met and I kind of sitting in her hut, she'd, she'd come back to, to Burma and was just telling the story of how this had happened to her. She'd had two children. Then she was basically disposed of, like, turned over to the authorities, sent back uh, to Myanmar, two children left in China. She has no idea where that community, she has no way of ever reaching these children. And then she was sitting here... Um, and, and there are a number of stories like this. Mm-hmm. Now, economic empowerment is absolutely a key because people take these desperate risks because they want a job, they want an income. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to solve the problem through economic development is pretty challenging because yeah. in a poor country like Burma, but we are certainly looking, we're working in Ethiopia and we're looking at training schemes and there's a huge demand in Ethiopia, for instance, for women to work in the garment industry. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get involved at the very early stages and say, let's do this right. Mm-hmm. You can offer them good jobs. They may not pay a lot, but they pay significantly more and they, you can do it so that they're not being exploited. And it stops these women, because the women in Ethiopia often um, migrate to Saudi Arabia to work in households where they're often locked up, they're often abused, they're often sexually abused. But of course, they take these risks because they just don't have other options. This yeah. is why I keep on coming back to this issue of vulnerability, and power, mm-hmm. um, and so it's how do we how do we tackle this vulnerability? And, and at my organisation, the Freedom Fund, one of the ways is about bringing these communities together because collectively they can be a lot more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so when you educate the communities, or not educate because that sounds very patronising, but you give them information that they can make their own decisions about, and give them access to options, then you can get much better outcomes, and you can find that communities can come together and are much, much more powerful than just vulnerable individuals on their own. Yeah, absolutely. And the Freedom Fund itself, so this is this is kind of what, uh, on the ground, it's, I know it's working with nearly 6,000 kind of community groups uh, across the world, but how, how, does, how does the Freedom Fund kind of engage with them? And could you talk to us about, about that a little bit? So we work in these places, we call them high-prevalence countries, countries with really high burden of slavery. Mm-hmm. So places like Ethiopia and Thailand or India, um, 
and you have these hugely vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. And a typical situation in India might be that, you know, there's there's a, a family, a father that's working the land and there's drought, right? Mm-hmm. Climate change drought. Yeah. Forced off the land. So he goes to the local brick kiln and takes out a loan. Mm-hmm. And he's got to work, produce a number of bricks. Turns out he can't produce those bricks. So the family has to get brought in, kids pulled out of school, and they're all working. And they're all controlled because they have this debt. They'll never pay it off mm-hmm. because it just keeps on increasing. And if they try and leave, they'll be threatened and beaten up. Mm-hmm. But it's illegal. They don't know it's illegal because this is just the way it's been. And often this happens over generations mm-hmm. and the whole community is working there and they're all, they're all working in this, in this situation on slavery. But you can work with local groups that start working with them and saying, look, you know, this is illegal. You have options. You know, we can help you, among other things, get out of this situation of exploitation, put your kids in school. Mm-hmm. And when you come out, we can support you because there's a huge fear of of the consequences of all of this. So we work with groups, they come together and work with these local communities and when they're ready, help them make the decision to come out of this situation and then help them work with authorities. When people come out of slavery, they're suffering significant mental trauma. I mean, imagine if you've just been controlled for years and told what you can and can't do and your family has been treated in this way. So you support them with um, trauma support, support them get the kids back in school, support the parents find other jobs. And it all sounds quite complicated, and it is quite complicated. But what we've found is that you can do this at scale uh, and you can have huge impact. So we just published a report recently that said working in India, in the communities where we were, over 50% of these these communities, these villages were in slavery when we started. And three years later, the numbers are down to 12%. That's insane. Um, and in, in India... In a just good in, way. In, and in a, a very remarkable way. In, within three years. Within three years. And what that means is just in those areas we're working in, which is not all of India, right? That's several thousand villages. 125,000 less people are in slavery than would have otherwise been the case. Now, that to me is phenomenal, yeah. but it's also a drop in the ocean. Yeah. So, so you've always, but what is really important about it is it shows there is a model that works. Yes, right? yeah. We're not there to solve slavery around the world. We're there to prove these models can be really powerful yeah. and to show people, because when I talk with people like you and we talk about slavery, often the response can be, well, this is really awful. And you're telling me it's existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So can we really do anything? Well, mm-hmm. the response is we can do something, mm-hmm. right? We can make a difference mm-hmm. uh, and we can make really powerful change. It's amazing. If 50% of a, of a survey, let's say you, take, you took a survey of a, a region in India, 50% of that population were in the conditions of slavery. Yep. And within three years, you had that down to 12%. Which is, which is, I have to say, staggering. And that, as you say, is just, is just offering information as to as to how members in, in those communities can get out of the, the situation. Is there legal? Is there legal representation? Is that a big part of it? It's collective action, mm-hmm. and so it's all of that. We support, or our local partners support lawyers. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, and I, I'm telling you stories because these stories. I think I went to Varanasi, this city in India, hugely significant religious city. Um, and one of our partners, I was introduced to a girl who had been working outside her community in the fields, had been raped by someone from her community and then trafficked into, up to Mumbai into a brothel. And then the local partner, the local organisation, the local charity had, had helped her come out. But she knew the person who had trafficked her. So she went to the police with her father. And this is very unusual because often, often, you know, parents won't stand by their children when they've been subject to this kind of um, abuse. abuse. Yeah. But the father was 
was right behind the daughter and very strong. So they, they tried to file a complaint and the, the police said, we're not going to take your complaint. You're of a lower caste. The person who's alleged to have committed this crime is part of the village power elite. And so they went nowhere. Then the, the, the local organisation gave them a lawyer. So they managed to file a complaint. Now, in most cases, you'd think, okay, well, that's the beginning of the process. But in fact, it was just the beginning of their pain because mm-hmm. then both the police and the local um, elders started applying huge pressure to the family to withdraw the complaint, they had to move house. And so, and then this case has been going for two or three years and they've had to move house and be supported. But it's really important, these examples, because it's only by pushing and pushing and pushing and changing the systems Mm -hmm. that we get real change. I keep on coming back to this fact. It is illegal there. It happens despite the law. It happens here despite the law. And what we have to do is make authorities more aware of it, be willing to act uh, and to, to listen to those that can't access power. If you find yourself inspired or angry, this podcast isn't just about talking. It's about making change happen. And you can do that right now. You can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on these issues. This is Hosier, and you're listening to my Cry Power podcast. We were talking a little bit about collaboration and getting getting people's you know, getting people around the table, so to speak, people who might be of differing opinions and uh, with funders and, and in the charitable section, uh, how do you kind of keep everybody on the, on the common ground and on the same page and, and moving towards a common, a common goal? Look, I, I don't know what it's like in the music industry, but <laughs> there, are, there are lots of big egos in the, in the non-profit <laughs> world. Yeah. Um, and it can be really hard, right? And, mm-hmm. and in fact, I find, you know, it's one of the most infuriating things. We're all dedicated to this common cause. But ego does get in the way. Yeah. I mean, my organisation, the Freedom Fund, works and partners with 140 local organisations and our whole model is bringing them together. We can do that in part because we're providing financial support, but we also do it by trying to take our ego out of it. We don't have a profile in the countries that we work in. It's all about the local partners, mm-hmm. right, because it's far more effective uh, and it empowers, if we keep on coming back to about power, it it, it, it recognises the legitimate power of our local partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes, and, and those groups then start agitating and advocating and, and becoming very effective voices. When I go to somewhere like New York, you know, and there are many good uh, international charities working there, there are issues of ego. And the only way you can deal with it is by trying to show a degree of humility yourself and model behaviour you like to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask others, they'll probably tell you that we're not always that successful at that. Uh, but it is an ethos and a culture. And I think it's 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 incumbent on us to behave that way. It's not about us. It's about those that we're serving, which are these highly vulnerable people. Yeah. We were speaking about what Theresa May had said, this being the one of the largest human rights issues of our, of our time. Just just talking about our, our times and what what people are witnessing, what people have, are, are kind of facing now at the moment, where you've got the displacement of one of the largest amounts of people since World War II, a population larger than the UK, I believe, you know, walking across the face of the earth undocumented. I think in 2016, it was reported there was about 10,000, within the EU, there was 10,000 children had gone missing. It's huge. What what kind of challenges does, are are you facing with with regards to that with people being picked up yeah. by human traffickers? There there are just immense challenges, and and it kind of rips your heart apart when you start thinking about this. I um I went to Lebanon uh, a little while ago, and of course you've got millions of um, Syrian refugees around the world, and and a huge percentage of them are in Lebanon, and 
and and and seeing six and seven year old kids being forced to work because their parents weren't the parents would be arrested but the kids were allowed to work and then when you hear stories of migrants and refugees and again talking to some some Syrians there who would send their children unaccompanied because they could only afford to send their children now trying to get them to Europe and and then just trying to understand what 10 year old 12 year old children were going through as they were trying to make their way to Europe and um and their vulnerability is and sometimes in this job and and it's it's not about me but you get overwhelmed when you think about all of this um because you know, and I've got a nine-year-old daughter and a thirteen-year-old daughter, and so your imagination um, doesn't require much activation. But what I try and do, and what I advocate to others, is to also look at the progress and the movement we can make. Which doesn't mean we don't think about the huge need. The flip side of the situation is we're talking about these issues. You're talking about these issues. Others are talking about this. World leaders are talking about these issues uh, in a way that wasn't happening ten years ago. One of the um, more important meetings or events I've participated in uh, was back in 2015, I was invited to address the UN Security Council. This is the main body of, of the United Nations. And I gave my presentation and, you know, it was fine. But after me spoke a woman, a young woman, uh, and it kind of ripped my heart about apart when she was talking about her story. And she was from Iraq and she was a city woman. ISIS had come to her village, killed most of the men, seized the women, sold them off into slavery. She gave this absolutely compelling, powerful account. And these hard-bitten ambassadors were just deeply, deeply moved. Um, and her name was Nadia Taha, who um, last year got the Nobel Peace Prize yeah. for this. Yeah. And so her willingness to tell her story and her courage uh, has raised this issue okay. right, to an international platform, mm-hmm. being picked up by leaders like Macron in France and so on. And so I keep on coming back to what is the progress we see? Because mm-hmm. There is so much horror out there yeah. that you need to also be very focused on what we can achieve and what we can do, and we can do a lot. Yeah, yeah. And as as you said, I'm sure this is a it's it's overwhelming. You're kind of you're kind of staring kind of into the abyss of of what people are capable of with regards to exploiting people and and harming people. What keeps you hopeful and what keeps you what keeps you optimistic or are you optimistic you know or if, if so can i can i have what you're having or if <laughs> but what keeps you hopeful and what keeps you you know do you mind me asking yeah uh, there's a sense of staring into the abyss there's also a sense of guilt to completely privileged world and and we fly in and we fly out so we see this this horror when i go to places like like um ethiopia and meet these women who have been trafficked and have been raped and have these children rejected by their communities and and then the then we go and they're still living with. Um, and so part of it is just having to deal with your own um, issues. But, I, you know, what gives me hope is is the fact that we know we can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the the results we're seeing in India of a massive reduction in bonded labour and forced labour, in places like Ethiopia, there's a new government there that is transforming the environment and um, our partners have worked very closely with the Ethiopian government to dramatically improve the conditions in which people migrate and reduce the risks. So we can make progress. I, I am by, uh, by nature an optimist. I um, do struggle sometimes these days, you know, when, when I kind of look at the political environment and climate emergency and, you know, with young children, but I still remain uh, optimistic. I think I, you have to be optimistic. I mean, you can't... Uh, and I don't mean that as in you have to 
tell yourself to be optimistic. You can't work in this space unless you have a sense of optimism of because um, otherwise it just does become overwhelming. Right? Mm. It's the, the fact that we can make a change that I know in my organisation, we just have this amazing group of staff who are, you know, super smart, super committed from all around the world mm. and making real change mm. uh, and so proud of them. And, and, and you know, we're a little organisation. We've got 45 staff working in eight countries and, and, and collectively this organisation working with all of our partners is showing that we can achieve massive change. Very much so. I mean, the, the figures are the figures are staggering. I'm keen as well to, to, to cycle back just for just for listeners and, and that they know, what, you know, what kind of changes they can they can make themselves. So if if there was, if is there any key things that myself or anyone listening could keep an eye out for or to or to think about or to engage in either as a voter or a consumer? Is there there's no silver bullet. There's, yeah. there's no silver bullet, obviously. Yeah, I think it's it's that constant pressure on businesses to make businesses aware that consumers are interested in where the things that they buy come from. Mm-hmm. And so it is when you are, uh, and I've done it when I when I bought a, a an engagement ring for my my wife. I asked the company, "What are your policies on diamonds, conflict diamonds?" And a lot of people heard of conflict diamonds coming from conflicts. Well, they're invariably mined by people who are in forced labour and slavery, mm-hmm. right? And by asking, and this this particular company had a proper policy because consumers had been pushing and asking for this. Um, these all sound like small things, but to be honest, if you start influencing the behaviour of major brands, and they mm-hmm. will pay attention if consumers are asking them. What are their policies? Mm-hmm. I'll be like, we have to have a policy. And of course, that feeds into driving government change. So the everyday things that we use, coffee, chocolate, clothes produced, particularly fast fashion, but all clothes, our mobile phones are powered with batteries that have coltan, a mineral in them that comes from the Congo. Mm-hmm. And kids are forced into these horrendous mines, these kind of dangerous pits to pull out coltan. Well, we can ask the Apples and the Samsungs and so on, what are their policies on these minerals? And they are under a lot of pressure to improve and they have the financial clout and the ability to make changes. But of course, companies are kind of, they're amoral. It's not that they're immoral, it's just that they won't change. You gave the example before of a corporate leader saying, Mm -hmm. oh, it will cost more, unless there is a degree of pressure. Mm -hmm. And, And I think particularly, you know, with millennial audiences that are really engaged in these issues, you can ask the question. Mm-hmm. Just means when you're buying something, do you have a policy? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, you know, why don't you have a policy? Where do your good clothes come from? They come from India or they come from Ethiopia or Bangladesh. You know, do you know what the working conditions are? And it's not a lot to ask, but it does begin a process, mm-hmm. um, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can also, sorry, I should also hear in, in the UK or in Europe, you know, just be aware of things like nail bars and kind of informal car washes. Mm-hmm. You you can look out. It's not that we can all spot the signs, but you can just be aware of things. If things are too cheap to be true, mm-hmm. they probably are too cheap too, yeah. to be true. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I suppose it's not outside the realm of possibility. People might, might, as you say, bear witness to either knowing or, or un- unknowingly to labour, which has been, you know, as a result of human trafficking or, or uh, people in conditions of, of, of slavery. What would what would somebody do, or who would they who would they call, or where would they where would they go to? If they... So there's a modern slavery helpline mm-hmm. um, that you can call, and it's available on the internet and and all the rest of it. Um, so if you have see anything, you can report it there, mm-hmm. and you can report if you're suspicious. You don't have to have knowledge, and the police here in the UK are much much better these days at understanding and responding. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because the government has made it a priority, 
Um, so, you know, I think the UK in some ways is a, a world leader in responding to this. So you will get a response if you call up and you say that you've seen something and you're worried about it. And that's really important. You know, we don't all come across this, but on occasions you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that can absolutely make a difference. Okay. And you, can I ask, you've just come from a... a was the UN General Assembly there in in, uh, in New York? What does a week like that look like to you? I think that it's kind of a mysterious art for me and for a lot of listeners as well too. I think it's mysterious for even those of us <laughs> that engage with it. You know, okay. so so the UN has uh, one called a high level week during its General Assembly. So that's when all the heads of state and that's when Donald Trump and all the world leaders come to the UN uh, in New York. So New York is gridlock, just complete gridlock. You've got motorcades going up and down and more so than more so than normal normal. um and and they use that occasion to to do a lot of big events there was a big climate summit there and uh, greta was there talking about climate change and all Mm -hmm. the rest of it this and we go because there are a lot of high level people there so it's a good opportunity to bring people together and mobilize And, and on our issue we um we had a couple of events we launched a report that we'd just been talking about about massive change because we can get ambassadors to that report and we can get senior government officials. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use that occasion. It, it, it's a madhouse during that week because everyone is trying to push and raise their issues and yes. that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's inspiring in its way. I mean, mm-hmm. particularly the activism, not necessarily what you see at the UN when ministers are speaking and that can be deadly boring. <laughs> but you get, you, I mean, you've got Global Citizen there that yes, week, right? Yeah. And they have the huge concert and they're active behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And they're all trying to mobilise because we all look for these opportunities to get to those that have the power to drive change and find ways of influencing them, be it through music and concerts and mobilisation, be it through meetings, be it through other events. It's it's much more of an art than a science about how do you influence those mm-hmm. that have the power to make change. It's about building grassroots support and showing that you have the legitimacy and um, on the issue that you care about. And yeah. there's no clear outcome. Uh, you don't get the UN Secretary General saying, right, this is what we're going to do on slavery and everyone will step into line. Mm-hmm. And It's a gradual process uh, and it can all be a bit messy. I mean, I, when I talk to people who want to know what it's like to work for a, for a charity, you know, on social justice issues, it's, it's not straightforward. You're constant. you're just pushing and pushing and pushing and building the case and building networks and trying to persuade people of the issue. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we do. The report you had said that that was just with regards to the results there in, in there was a region in India, did you, did you say? So, yeah, two regions, one in North India and one in South India. Okay. So we'd been working separately, but both had very similar outcomes. Okay. Um, and it just shows that, you know, if you can work with local organizations and communities and bring them together, you can drive real. And I, I, I find those results, I find them very exciting, you know, on my issue on slavery. Mm-hmm. But they're actually much more important about saying if you've got really vulnerable communities and you find an effective way for them to come together and exercise power, you can drive real change. And that can be about girls schooling. It can be about health issues. It can be about neglected diseases. It can be about all of these things. We have a, a powerful model of driving change. And I think in this world where where power is being challenged and is, is, is arguably, um, you know, there's a re-examination of what power means, mm-hmm. um, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think we need to pay a lot more attention to kind of helping those that can't access power get that power. And that's mm-hmm. what that's what the anti-slavery movement did 200 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it built, there's, there, there are great lessons from, from the movement of a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, 
there was a book that I was going to bring you, but unfortunately I've given it to someone else. <laughs> um, but it was about it was about a small group of Quakers in the UK in the late 1700s coming together at a time when slavery was just the accepted practice around the world. Mm. And they came together and said, we're going to change this. Now, everyone would have laughed at them at that because it was just a norm. Right? Slavery was the way it happened. Mm-hmm. And within 30 years, England had passed the Abolition of Slavery Act. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They had abolished the slave trade. Yeah. And they built a movement, and not just them, but many others mm-hmm. around them, many activists and politicians. Mm-hmm. They, they pioneered many of the campaigning movements that we still use. Mm-hmm. This is why the book is so interesting to me, because it's just so powerful. And it talks about, you know, it talks about um, boycotts, consumer boycotts. It talks about MEMS about producing images of slave ships to to expose people to the real horror of what slavery was actually like, book tours, petitions. So many of the practices that we still were were pioneered by the anti-slavery movement of 250 years ago or so. Yeah, I'll definitely take the name of that. So the book about the anti-slavery movement of 250 years ago is called Bury the Chains by Adam Hochschild. Okay. And it's a wonderful book. Thank you, Adam I would be interested. I was raised as a Quaker also, so I would, I would be fascinated to hear. Learn a bit I, of that I did my own research. So okay, I wanted to okay. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I find that, and, and the Quakers are still very active in the anti-slavery. I mean, and, and, but to me, again, it just comes back to this kind of conceptualization of what is power like and how do we challenge mm-hmm. You know, excessive power. Yeah, and can I ask you just what's on the horizon for the for the Freedom Fund and for yourself? Well, I think what we've we've done after five years of operation is proved one really powerful model, mm-hmm. and now we're going to become evangelists for that model. Yes, because we want to persuade. One of the big challenges in the anti-slavery space is the data is really bad, mm-hmm. and there's an organisation called Walk Free, which puts out an annual index, which is which which produced the number of forty point three million people in slavery today. And so it's trying to, but that number, as we get better and better data, sadly just keeps on going up, not because necessarily slavery is increasing, it's just that we yeah. actually get better measurement. So there is a real need just because if you can't measure something, you you don't even know if you're making change. So, so and then when you prove particular approaches can work, we want to say to people, and it gets back to this issue around optimism and change, right? we can address this. So if we go to policymakers in places like Bangladesh or Nepal, you know, they may say, this is the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. It's awful, but nothing can be done. Mm-hmm. And we actually want to say, well, in fact, it can be done and here's the proof. Uh, and then governments, particularly donor governments in, in the West, you know, the Scandinavians and the British and the Americans are putting more and more resources into this issue. Mm-hmm. And so if we have proven approaches and more resources, mm-hmm. then and, and greater awareness, particularly in the countries with this high burden, we can drive real change over time. So that's that's what for the Freedom Fund and our many partners in the space. That's that's the goal over the next five to ten years. Okay. Nick, thank you. Thank you so much. I found this conversation enlightening and harrowing and inspiring and and just very just just wonderful. I really, really appreciate it personally, you know, I found it very, very enriching. But and thank you so much for giving giving, giving us your time. Well, thank you for, for your interest and also for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, it. It really matters to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And all the best for the future and, and congratulations on, on recent success of, of the, of the programme. Oh, thank you very much. is made in association with Global Citizen, a movement of activists all over the world who are using their collective voice to end extreme poverty by 2030. 
you can head to globalcitizen.org slash crypower to take action on any of the issues we talk about on this show and earn tickets to gigs all over the world by signing petitions, writing emails, or sending tweets to world leaders. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the CryPower podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Hosier, and this is CryPower.